What a delightful morning it is for us to be able to come together on an occasion such as this one, to have been blessed with the beauty of that which surrounds us, the handiwork of God in that fashion, and of course the majesty of the character of the church and our ability to come together as those ministering servants and those faithful in it. We're so thankful for the presence of each and every one today, our membership and our visitors alike. If you have any questions or comments, those visiting with us about our congregation, we hope you'll seek out one of our elders. Feel free to ask of them questions concerning our classes, the other things about the church. We simply strive to be nothing more or less than what we read about in the New Testament. Like those faithful congregations in Philippi and other places, we want the Pippin Church of Christ to be very much like exactly one of them. This morning, as you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, we'll consider a lesson simply entitled, Providing for Honest Things. You may have noted in the reading, taken there from the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, some issues in which that very word was employed, and I might invite each of us over the next few moments this morning, somewhat briefly, to give some reflection and thought about providing for honest things. With those introductory thoughts perhaps on our mind, let's continue them in wording somewhat like this. Today's lesson will begin somewhat negatively, but I, in fact, specifically put it forth in that fashion to draw us to the character of what it is that's the urgency of this moment. We will understand from the teaching of the Word of God that Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, in fact, sets that for us in plain language. He is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 4, verse number 2. As one makes note about those matters, and if he is the one so influential in this world, what does that perhaps lead us to see relative to the state of integrity, honesty, and character? We only need to ask, what's the character of the devil? What's the character of Satan? And that should lead us to see if he's the God of the world. What then should we see manifested on so many occasions, albeit it's unfortunate, and albeit it's, in fact, very sad. In John 8, verse 44, our Savior Himself directly said of Satan, He is the father of liars and all of those who dispense any such thing. In fact, Satan is a liar, and he was from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when to Eve he said to her, Thou shalt not surely die. Genesis 3, verses 4 and following. Whereas God had said that she would die, and Adam would too, Satan merely changed it. He lied to her. Doesn't that perhaps remind us that on maybe the last page of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, we find specifically in verse 8 of Revelation 21, the fact that amongst those who will be numbered in that group that shall experience an eternity in hellfire, those who will receive the damnation of that fire that burns with brimstone, it says, all liars. We immediately notice then, do we not, that this is an urgent situation. The God of this world encourages lying. He encourages deceit. He encourages that which is false. And yet, the Bible says the end of all of them who give in to such shall be, in fact, an eternity separated from the God who loved them and the God who sent His Son for them. Thus today, let's remind ourselves about providing for honest things. What does that help us to see, and where should we stand relative to these matters? May I submit, let's begin in words like this. The negativity will continue for at least a few more moments. 
What I'm about to say is certainly nothing new. It is certainly nothing that will come as a shock or a surprise. But we do seem to live in a world wherein we so easily perceive and we so easily see the climate of falsehood, a climate in which there seems to be a dearth of character and integrity and where honesty seems to be something that is greatly lacking. For instance, how often do we encounter political scandals in which those who have been elected to offices in perhaps Washington or Nashville or even other places are soon found out to involve themselves in bribery, various other personal or other schemes in which votes have been bought. Things have been done that not only are not to be encouraged, but they are known to be wrong. Deception. Deceit. They lied to their voters. They lied to all, in fact, who are seeking to support them because they lived a life of dishonesty and a life far beneath the integrity of those who ought to occupy such an office. But yet, what about, in addition to that, corporate scandals? How many companies have we seen on the news for which the chief financial officer, their chief operating officer, or even others were caught directly red-handed, stealing from the very citizens of the company, taking from their retirement plans? They were cheating them. They lied to them. Dishonesty again. In addition, perhaps we can well think about academic areas. Having worked in academia, and many of you have as well, isn't it interesting that now, in most cases, college students have to sign an academic dishonesty policy in which they are at least made aware that cheating is wrong. Ought they not to have known that by the time they get to age 18? Ought they not know that plagiarism and cheating are not acceptable? As one considers matters like that, perhaps it only leads us to perhaps, in addition, see that there are many areas where even those who have won Nobel Prizes have been caught plagiarizing the works of others. Dishonesty, deception, deceit, lying, a woeful lack of integrity. As I mentioned, these negative things are no surprise to us when we appreciate that Satan is the God of this world. It does not change at all what the God of heaven has declared. There's another quote that I've also included for your brief consideration. Some 28 years ago, two gentlemen authored a book. The book was entitled, The Day America Told the Truth. In the concourse of that book, they made the following statement. In the course of gathering the evidence and, the ga and gathering the data that they used to compile the figures in that book, they polled a cross-section of the American population, and one of the sets of questions involved honesty. It involved telling the truth or, on the other hand, telling lies. According to Patterson and Kim, the authors of that book, a full 91% of those who responded said that they lie regularly. Now, I fully understand that it's always possible for the figures in a statistical poll like that to be somewhat misleading because, after all, the questions may have been worded in a way that encouraged certain answers, but still, isn't it true that the figure is alarming? If the number is even close to that, then we can well say that the state of affairs in America is far from being pleasant. If a vast majority of those in our land tell lies regularly and in fact have that little encouragement relative to the truth, where does that mean that we stand? Can one have any confidence in business dealings? Can one have any confidence in other affairs of interrelations in life with other people if on the majority of instances they're not going to tell you the truth? 
those matters are sufficiently alarming and staggering that let's close that slide by at least making note of the fact God has a different order of the day. Even though the world may encourage and even tolerate lying and dishonesty and lack of integrity, it is far from that in God's holy book. For in the Bible we find that that which is set before us is an encouragement to always be those diligently pursuing the truth. And lying has no part to play in those that wish to be pleasing unto God. With those thoughts in mind, let's give some additional consideration to some Bible passages that lead us to appreciate honesty and the evil of lying. For let's begin in the Old Testament. For isn't it still true that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope? That famous text of Romans 15 verse 4. Let's begin then with one of the statements that God through Moses made to the children of Israel in that ancient day of the long ago. We will not read all of those three verses, but I might encourage you to notice especially verse number 20. He had just preceded that by encouraging the officers and the judges to always be those who deal justly and whose judgment was to be fair. They were not to accept bribes. They were not to, in fact, do things in judgment that benefited those who could benefit them. Judgment, in essence, needed to be blind. Just because a person had money, just because a person had prestige and honor, that person was not to be benefited in judgment just for that reason. Judgment was to be just. After addressing the officers and those who had the opportunity to dispense judgment, we notice in verse 20 that God turned His attention to all citizens of Israel, everybody, whether they be judges, officers, or otherwise. It was to them that He said, That which is altogether just shalt thou follow. That which is altogether just. There was to be no partiality or to, in fact, deceive, beguile, or mislead someone else. Altogether is the adverb that actually appears in the ancient Hebrew. Notice that Israel was to be a people honorable of that which was altogether just. To say those things about ancient Israel perhaps testifies to us that God was and remains a God of truth. God doesn't lie, Titus 1 verse 2 he, in every regard and in every way, always follows, pursues, and upholds that which is true. He desires that to be the same for His people. Those who would thus serve God in a pleasing fashion would also have a regard for, a desire to pursue, and a life that could be described as one of truth. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, Near the close of Moses' life, Moses to the children of Israel reminded them God is a God of truth. No wonder we can have such confidence then in that which God has written. This book that is His Word, thus, since He is a God of truth, this is completely and entirely that which is true. And thus a life built upon it, based upon it, that pursues it devotedly, is a life that can thus be wholesomely recognized as one of truth. In addition to that text in Deuteronomy 16, look with me furthermore at something the Savior uttered in Luke 16.10. As he made note of that parable of the unjust steward and set before the people on that day this little nugget of truth, he that which is, he that, that which is true, 
and faithful in that which is least will be true and faithful in that which is much. Similarly, those who thus are not true and faithful in that which is least will not be faithful in that which is much. That helps us to see, doesn't it, that life in all of its spectrum, be it from the major decisions and the major matters in which one may involve to those least matters, God respects truthfulness. You and I need to uphold that in all that we do. The little matters in which we directly confer with others personally to those giant matters where we may influence many at a time. Truth is important in everything that we do. To speak about truth in that way, I thought it would be appropriate if we gave a definition for what it means to lie. This definition is borrowed from one of the dictionaries that I happen to have at the house. But it means to make a statement that one knows to be false. Furthermore, an, an, an additional definition that would be potentially possible, to give a false impression or to deceive. When a person knowingly then states that which is not true and is known to not be true, that person's guilty of lying. That person's guilty of seeking to deceive, seeking to mislead. As you and I can well appreciate that thought, it does lead us to notice, though, that there are some other words that at least have relation to this. These might be less known to us, but we should be aware of them. For instance, consider these words with me, if you would. That verb prevaricate, you'll notice in parenthesis I've defined what that word means. And there are those in our world, in our land, who are skilled at prevarication. What does it mean? Prevaricate simply means to confuse an issue in order to evade the truth. Someone asks a question, and rather than directly answer it, you merely seek to confuse what was asked perhaps altering and confusing to the point where no longer is the thought on the mind of the matter that was asked, and hence one evades the truth that was known all along that didn't want to be said. You've merely confused the matter. You've deceived the person by confusing him or her. Notice what equivocate means. This word simply means to use ambiguity in such a way, again, as to avoid the matter before you. There are certainly those exceedingly skilled at equivocation, aren't they? They seem to never directly answer a question, especially when there is the potential for harming what they hope to bring about, what they themselves in the past have stood for. They will dodge the issue often by equivocation. Perhaps finally, notice that word fabricate. That simply means to invent things that really aren't the case at all, to, in fact, invent things that seemingly lead to the opposite conclusion to that which has uh, been set forth in the question. All of those things challenge us today to ask. It's easy to see deception can occur by way of equivocation, by way of prevarication, by way of fabrication. What does God have to say about any and all of it? Let's first consider that straightforward matter of lying for a moment. We find easily in the following text, in Proverbs 12, verse 22, going back to the days of the wisdom in Solomon's era, we find there very carefully that lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord. What was that, Solomon? Lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord, meaning that this is that which wreaks hatred from him. Lying lips. God does not encourage, certainly doesn't tolerate that one who gives over to the usage of lying in his speech. 
Notice furthermore we can read, continuing in the text following that one in Exodus 20 verse 16, back in the very heart of the Ten Commandments, wasn't it true there that God through Moses said, Thou shalt not bear false witness? They were not to specify by way of testimony that which they knew was not true. Those Old Testament passages perhaps even remind us again. What about the New Testament? Did the Son of God, while walking here upon earth, encourage truth in His disciples? Did He encourage truth in the heart and mind of all of those who would be pleasing to Him? Perhaps we can see an associated passage in Matthew chapter 5. For in verse 8, what is it there we read? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Each of us can appreciate the lovely association between purity and truth. Lying is perceived as dark. It's perceived as that which is tainted with the mars of falsehood and untruthfulness. But purity in the heart and the speech and in the thinking is a purity lifted high by the holy text. And perhaps one final time, as if these other matters weren't strong enough, we notice in Revelation 21.8, in that passage that describes those who will not enter heaven, we cannot emphasize that enough, those who will not enter heaven, it certainly includes murderers, those that are sexually unfaithful. It includes those who go about other things that God has condemned. But in that list, we notice liars are included right in it. You and I thus ought to first of all convince ourselves and remind ourselves that though Satan and the world may make lying appear all right, he may simply make it look as though that's a natural part of living. It is not part of living for the Lord. It is not part of living for God. For the God condemns it on every place. He has opportunity to do so. We see in all of those passages that they lead us maybe to ask about these other things. What about equivocation? Prevarication? What about that matter that we have discussed in all of them? Let's look at some other passages that in addition address the matter of deceit. Now we'll notice again the word lying is not directly in place here for we're looking at a larger subject. Is it alright to deceive somebody? Even if I don't directly lie to them, suppose I construct my speech in such a way I lead them to a conclusion that I know to be wrong. Now, we can say you haven't lied to them. You did have a part to play in deceiving them. You did have a part to play in purposefully misleading them. Let's see what God may have to say to us in matters such as these. In the 119th Psalm of the Old Testament, that longest chapter in the 39 Old Testament books, we notice in the 118th verse of that chapter, we directly see there that deceit is falsehood. The two are directly equated one to the other. Deceit is said to be falsehood. But as if that isn't enough, we notice in Jeremiah 17 verse number 9, there in that rather famous statement from that bold and courageous prophet of old, we notice that God through him said, speaking of the heart of man, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I would only ask that you notice the comparison that was therein made. Wickedness on the one hand was arrayed with deceit on the other. Thus, deceit is portrayed and hailed as wickedness, isn't it? Thus, the question, would it be acceptable for me in the eyes of God to purposefully mislead somebody, to deceive them to where they reach a conclusion 
that may benefit me in some way, but I have not led them in the direction of the truth. Our world, in some ways, has gotten to the point, it would seem, that not only is lying becoming more a normal matter, but so too is deceit. For many will thus claim, in the usage of that deceit, well, I didn't lie. But you did deceive, and we've now seen that God doesn't look favorably upon that purposeful deceit either. Consider perhaps one final passage. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 6, in that fourth chapter of that 1 Thessalonian epistle, Paul, that marvelous and powerful inspired writer, therein to the congregation in Thessalonica, and specifically said that they were to wrong their brother in no regard. In no regard. That word wrong is a very strong word. He didn't say, just say to not lie to them. They were not either directly or indirectly to be wronged by any of their brothers or sisters in Christ. You and I should thus see that if we mislead somebody, we perhaps state things in such a way that they reach a conclusion that is different from the truth. We've misled them. And in so doing, God doesn't look upon that favorably at all, does He? For He is a God of truth. Never did He mislead or deceive us. He sent His Son to die on our behalf, despite the fact we were enemies to His cause and enemies to His name. These, perhaps, these also help us to see in the Christian life how that Paul had even spoken about giving up all manner of deceit and enforced that it was to be no part of the life of those that were to be the followers of God. In Ephesians 5 verse 3, all uncleanness was to be done away with. That is an exceedingly broad term, isn't it? All uncleanness, no matter what form it takes. Can we not also appreciate in 2 Corinthians 4 verse number 2, in which there that in terms of deceitfulness, it was completely to be done away with as those that were noble and honorable and proper servants to the God of heaven. In fact, isn't it interesting, in that same passage, he even made reference to the fact that the Word of God is not to be handled deceitfully. You see, in addition to the other manner of one's life and the possibility of deceit to be seen in it, it's possible to handle this book deceitfully. To take a passage out of its context and thus try to use it to teach that which the context does not allow and that which the Word of God elsewhere does not teach. Oh, how cautious all of us must be as defenders of this truth to ever rightly divide it, 2 Timothy 2.15, to present it in all the earnestness and honesty with which God gave it to us so that it can touch honestly the hearts of those who are lost. We see in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Thus, our lives as those that are the church should be a life of truth in every regard. That which we say, a person should be able to accept it as truth. That which we do should have the truth behind and as foundational to it. Even our thinking needs to be closely guarded so that we rest it upon things that are true. For aren't we reminded in Philippians 4.8, Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. We are admonished thus to think on that which is true, 
and that which is just. If that which is just and true is that which we allow to rest on our mind continually, it seems that greatly unlikely will be the cases when we actually then act in a lying fashion, an unjust fashion, a fashion that in fact would be condemned by God. There are in the scriptures some passages that set before us this matter of honorableness and honesty. We read one of them as the lesson text this morning in 2 Corinthians 8.21. Can, you can find a sister passage in Romans 12 verse 17 where there Paul said, providing for honest things in the sight of all men. In the sight of all men. Specifically in that context of 2 Corinthians 8, we well remember that the issue had to do with the collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Paul took great pains to ensure that that money that he collected was such that it could be presented and viewed completely honestly. They were not to appreciate that he was dipping his hand into the teal. They were not to in any way see that it was personally benefiting him and not going to the rightful recipients in Jerusalem. Paul strove to make every presentation of honesty. Is that any different for you and me today? When I deal with a person in a business matter, or when I speak with them on a personal matter of character, should it not be noted that they should have the confidence that that which I say would be based upon the truth and there would be no hint of deception or no desire to mislead in any way? There are various passages that give examples of these. In 2 Kings 22, there's those workmen who it says there was no tally needed to be made of the money given to them because they were known for faithfulness. Those workers who repaired the temple... Joseph in Genesis 37 and 39, who though himself there in Potiphar's household, he dealt faithfully. So trustworthy was he that he was given charge of much of what Potiphar had control of himself. In some of the concluding thoughts to our lesson this morning, I would actually help each of us to see that God gives us a rather straightforward challenge to uphold in our lives honesty, character, and integrity. That means lying has no place for you and for me if we would be people of truth and who encourage it. And that perhaps leads us to notice one interesting matter of language that has come to be prevalent in our society. Maybe you and I have even lapsed into the usage of it. Have in conversation you encountered anyone that may be used as a colloquialism the following statement. Well, to be honest with you, friend, if you and I are Christians, there should never be any other way but an honesty we perhaps ought to remove that statement from the typical way that we talk. I should always speak honestly with you. I should never have need to say, well, to be honest with you. You ought to have the confidence that what I say is the truth. That what I say will not lead to, will not mislead or beguile or mislead you. To be honest with you, that's a statement that doesn't need to be used by you and by me. You see, we should be people of honesty, integrity, of character, and not the character that the world defines. The world, again, upholds these dishonest matters, but God upholds honesty, and He desires that to be the kind of people that you and I are. With those thoughts in mind concerning lying and concerning its opposite of this matter of integrity, may I ask that we each perhaps look at these four very brief things. 
May we first convince ourselves always of the importance of honesty and integrity. The devil will try to make it seem unimportant. He will make it seem insignificant and trivial. It doesn't matter if you're completely honest. If it benefits you, all tell a little lies what he will say to you. May we never lose sight of the importance of honesty and integrity in all that we do. Secondly, might we understand that honesty and integrity are defined by God, not by me. Just because it benefits me, that is not the definition of integrity or honesty. This book has that definition. May we thus turn to it to know how to live in that way of honesty. Thirdly, might we appreciate also that dishonesty, though it may appear to prosper in the short term, it does not prosper in the final matter. On that day of judgment, when that person stands before the august presence of the God of heaven and has to give account of the deeds done in the body, and therein is dishonesty found, therein is lying and falsehood to be noted, We've already noticed that person will not inherit heaven. And finally, might we notice that this matter of deception that we've looked at today is also a serious matter. Not only let us put away lying, but let us also put away deception. Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor, to quote Ephesians 4.25. With those things said today, let's be reminded, all of us, about the power of honesty and integrity. And let's close our lesson by being refreshed and renewed in the purposeful appreciation of God's truth and how that He wants us to be people of truth. Are you a Christian today? Are you living a life built on the truth of this book? Not what a person may have said to you or what someone may at one point have noted to you, but rather literally and exactly what does this book say? It says salvation is for those of the children of God and you become a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus as you respond to the gospel call of invitation. Any person does. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8 verse 24. You need to repent of your sins for they have what separated you from Him, Luke 13 5. Furthermore, you need to confess the marvelous name of Jesus as the Son of God uttered in Matthew 10 verses 32 and 33. And then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. If at some point in life you have come to become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful to that calling, come back to your first love. If we could be of assistance and help to you today, it'd be our privilege. And in fact, the angels of heaven will rejoice upon your behalf. If you need to respond today publicly to the call of the gospel invitation, won't you do that while together we stand and while we sing?